0: All right, good morning, Mercy Hill Church. Grab a Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter seven. My name's Brad, I'm one of the pastors here. Invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter seven. While the kids are being dismissed, a quick announcement, Chris is gonna restate this at the end, but I want you to hear it twice. We're not gonna be here next week, so don't come here. Our annual camping trip is next weekend, and we're gonna be at uh, Shelby Forest. We'll send an email out this week with directions and details. So we've always had people complain in the past that it's too much work to only camp one night. So for those hardcore campers, we'll be there Friday night and Saturday night. Some of us are really looking forward to that. And uh, if you're not a camper at all, then just come out on Sunday morning. Come to the campsites. We'll have our worship service there, regular time, 10 a.m., If by chance it is raining, we will post on our Facebook page which pavilion we're meeting under. All right? So that's the rain policy. Hebrews chapter 7. It's hard to believe, but we're only going to meet in this building six more times before the end of the year. Can you believe that? We're looking at Hebrews 7 this week. We're camping next weekend. We're looking at Hebrews 8 the next week. After that, it's Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Jared's going to bring a message on the discipline of gratitude. You're going to enjoy that. And then we're going to jump into an Advent series for December. We'll take the 31st off as we normally do. We usually take the last Sunday of the year and just cancel our services, say enjoy time with family and friends. Six more Sunday gatherings. Hard to believe. Today, we are going to make a great attempt to push all the way through Hebrews chapter 7. It's 28 verses. I realized this morning that none of you woke up with the idea that we've been studying the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. And I realize that probably no one is tracking in such a way that you were like, I've got to make it there this morning. They're studying about Melchizedek. I mean, they're studying big mail this morning. It's what Hebrews is all about. I've got to make it to study about big mail. I realize that none of you probably thought that this morning, but if you will stick with me through this passage as we study about a guy named Melchizedek, who's a very mysterious character, if you'll stick with me, he is going to show us a clearer and a bigger picture of Jesus in a way that we couldn't understand without him. So, in order to understand this passage of Scripture, what I'd like to do today, I'm not going to try to outline it for you. There's no way to do that in the short amount of time we have. I'm just going to teach and apply, teach and apply, kind of as we go. But to understand Hebrews 7, there's two words that you need to be clear on, and I want to introduce you to those two words before we jump into the passage. The first word is priest, and the second word is type. So when I say the word priest, there's a lot of things that probably come to mind for you. If you didn't grow up in the Catholic Church, then you probably think of a good Halloween costume. Clerical collar, maybe. What else comes to mind? Maybe mass or liturgy? Black robes? Black robes maybe single guys? A little quirky? <laughs> Confession booth? If that's not weird, I don't know what is. <clears throat> So maybe you don't have a very good understanding of priests, so then you go, I didn't grow up Catholic, so I just think evangelical pastor. Well, now we're further off. Because now you're thinking about a guy that only works one day a week, plays golf most of the time. Yeah? You can take him or leave him. You know, if you don't like him, just go find another one. You know? Or hey, evangelical pastor, if you don't like him, you can become one for $9.99 on the internet. You too. Can become licensed. Right? And so we, we don't have a clear understanding of what Priest is really like, but in this day and time, think Old Testament, the priest of this day, let me just say it this way, without them, you don't know God. At least without them, you are not connected to God. Without the priest, good luck. There is no hope in connecting with God. The priest of the Old Testament were kind of like psychologists doctor preacher and at times even judge all wrapped up into one and they were the person that connected you to God so you got to have a clear understanding of priest but then you also have to have an understanding of typology or a type within the old testament the old testament is filled with all kinds of types some of you, this is very familiar to you. Others, you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. A type refers to an Old Testament person or a ceremony or even an animal. And it has an, it has an anti, anti-type in the New Testament. So the best way of, of describing this or illustrating it is you're reading through the Old Testament. You're going through the story of God. And you're not getting all bogged down in the details, but all of a sudden you hit a, a narrative section and you go, huh, that kind of reminds me of Jesus. Huh, that's kind of a shadow of like another story of what Jesus came to fulfill or the fuller, clearer picture that Jesus showed us. Huh, that's interesting. Types always point forward because they prefigure Jesus. So a couple of types, just to give you an example, God commanded Moses to make a bronze serpent, to raise it up before the people, and all who looked upon it would be healed. Hmm, does that sound familiar? Does that sound like one who was to come, who would be raised up upon a cross, and all who looked upon him by faith would be healed? That's a type. Another type that is even clearer is the sacrificial lamb within the Passover that we then see all throughout the Old Testament in the Passover ceremony. And the Passover is a type of Christ in so many different ways. Remember, the lamb, you must not break a bone in his body. Innocent, but sacrificed on behalf of the sins of the people. Hmm, who does that sound like? Those are types. The study of typology strengthens our belief in God's authorship of the Scriptures because types add unity to Scripture. They point to Jesus as the main character of the story, and they point to Him as the main character of the story even before He comes on the earthly scene. And we're going to see a type today. Melchizedek, who we're going to study all throughout chapter 7, He is a type of Christ. He is meant to foreshadow and resemble Jesus in the work that he would accomplish. So let's jump in. Hebrews 7, beginning in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Stay with me, all right? Melchizedek, his name literally means king of righteousness, but he was also the king of Salem, which means king of peace. Sound like anybody? King of righteousness and king of peace? Does that sound like anybody we might come in contact with in the New Testament? And he comes to Abraham bringing a blessing to him. A blessing is Abraham comes back. Now, we're, if you think of the, this biblical narrative, we're in Genesis We're somewhere between chapters 12 and 14, okay? So Abraham has come on the scene. If I remember the story right, Lot uh, has run off, and now Abraham, or maybe it's Aaron, I can't remember, somebody who was close to Abraham has been captured, and Abraham goes after them and slaughters all these kings and brings them back. And this particular king and high priest, Melchizedek, blesses Abraham. His blessing would have been bread and wine. Bread that was generally offered in showing strength and wine, which always portrayed life and joy. So he comes and he blesses Abraham. And Abraham, in return, it says in verse 2 that Abraham ties 10% to this king, to Melchizedek. The tithe to the Hebrew was always it was symbolic. It was a symbolic gesture which said, all that I own and all that I possess is yours. So I'm going to give you 10% in showing that all that I own and all that I possess is yours. Now, this is where it gets really strange in verse 3. Look back. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. What? Some of you are going, I knew it. There are aliens. It's right there. I can prove it. No, it's not what this story is talking about. As we look, this is where this is a reference, in a sense, not to the man Melchizedek, but it's a reference to the story. See, what's so interesting about him is his genealogy is missing, and genealogy is a big deal in the Bible. If you go back and look at Genesis eleven, it's all about genealogy. Why? Because there. If you think back to the biblical narrative, right? There's creation, there's the fall, there's Adam and Eve, there's Noah. And and what's the story thus far? God has a plan. Man has a different plan. Right? Distrust. Adam and Eve. God has a plan. Man has a different plan. Noah. God has a plan. All of the earth excel outside of Noah's family. Different plan. Right? And now we get to Genesis 11, and it's like God is saying... I'm pinpointing this one little family, this one little dude, Abraham. He's a Gentile. He's nobody special. In fact, he's a pretty, he's kind of a screwy guy. If you go on and look at the rest of his life, he gives his wife, Sarah. He gives her away twice. He gives her away. I don't know who she is. She's not my wife. You can have her. Like, who does that? But God chooses this man, not because he's righteous, but because God would send one who is righteous. And God is making this tribe and this people great for his namesake, for his glory. So you got this genealogy that's all pointing to Abraham. And then you got this guy, Melchizedek, who shows up on the scene. And it's like, he's got no genealogy. What's going on? Where does he come from? See, for Melchizedek, there's no genealogy, no beginning or end. And his story is written in that way to make it as clear as possible. Okay, so here's the bottom line. You need, to, you need to understand that here's the analogy, if you don't get it so far. Melchizedek is Jesus, and we are Abraham. That's the analogy here as we read through the rest of this chapter. Melchizedek is Jesus, and we're Abraham. That's the analogy. <clears throat> All right, pick up in verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. That is, from their brothers. Though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descendant from them receives tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes paid, <clears throat> who receives tithes paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins. That's a good word. That's a good one right there. Loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. All right. You know, you're just a glimmer in your father's eye. Loins. You can use that one sometime, all right? (laughs) That was just extra. It's supposed to be funny. Forget it. Okay, (laughs) so there's a lot going on in this passage. You can study it later on your own. I'm going to highlight what's happening here. In verse 4, for some strange reason, Abraham tithes. He's so blessed by this king of righteousness and this king of peace that he tithes 10% of all that he has to this king. Why? Patriarchs in this day did not tithe. They sat at the head of the table. They bent their knee to no one. This would have been incomprehensible to the Hebrews. Why did Abraham tithe? Abraham is great. Do you see what the writer of Hebrews is doing here? He is showing us there is one who is greater than Abraham. You guys raise up Abraham. You say, God pinpointed Abraham. God made Abraham's family great. Abraham is righteous. Abraham is great. No, there is one who is greater than Abraham because Abraham tithed to this guy. Now, keep going. Look in verse five. He mentions Levi. You're like, what's up with Levi? Are we talking genes here? Are we talking like Wranglers, Levites? Like what's going on? No, Levi is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now do the 12 tribes of Israel exist yet? No. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's sons, 12 tribes. One would be Joseph. One would be Levi. Levi was of the tribe that it was said of him that His tribe would be the priests who would rule over the tabernacle and then over the temple. So he's saying the priests get tithes from the people of Israel because it's a command. But Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek because he represents something even greater than the Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament. Stay with me. I'm going to bring it home to your neighborhood in just a few minutes. Stay with me. The Levit- this is what you need to understand for this section. The Levitical order of priests is an Abrahamic system in the Old Testament. But in the end, here's what the passage is pointing to. There is a system that is greater than Abraham. Meaning, although there is great value in what the priests did in the Old Testament, there is something even greater that God wants to do through Jesus. Okay. So as great as the old covenant was, and as great as the sacrificial system was, the writer of Hebrews is telling this people, don't turn away from Jesus. Don't go back to your old way of living, because Jesus is better. This actually applies to us today. I'm going to make it make sense in just a minute. Stick with me. Verse 11. This is where it's going to start to come together for you. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? What's he talking about? This is a really important point that Christians and non-Christians alike need to hear. So you can underline verse 11 if you're an underliner. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what he is saying, and we need to hear this, because up until this point, you're probably thinking, I don't know what all this Old Testament jargon is, and I don't even know why we need to study it because I thought we had Jesus. Well, it's important because it helps us understand how much we need Jesus. We cannot keep the law. And here's the problem, that even though we have Jesus, we keep trying just like this people. We keep trying to go back under the law in order to find our righteousness. We cannot keep the law. That's what this passage is saying. We cannot meet the standard. We should give up trying. So bad counseling advice for you, but I'm gonna give it to you. Whenever you try to say, you know, I just need to, I need to do better, bad counseling advice, stop doing that. Okay? Because you can't. That's what this passage is teaching. You can't do better. You can't. You can't keep the law. So stop trying. You say, that doesn't make sense. I thought we were at church. You're telling me to stop being moral? just stay with me. We can't keep the law. Seriously, we should give up because Christians, I believe, are some of the most legalistic people in all the earth. Some of the most legalistic. Let me let me give you a hint so that you can come to understand your own legalism because it's there. If you use terms like I need to work on that. I need to try harder. I need to get it together. Do you ever have those thoughts? Do you ever use those words? I need to work on that. I need to try harder. I need to get it together. Those phrases are not in keeping with the gospel. They're not in keeping with the gospel. Listen to Colossians chapter 2. I don't have it on the screen, but you can flip over there. You'll probably beat me on your phones. Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. Listen to these words. We are some of the most legalistic people in all the earth. and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. What's he saying? He's saying all those little r- list of rituals and rules that we keep that somehow, you know, okay, I'm just gonna go ahead and name a couple of them. I grew up Baptist. <clears throat> We're affiliated with Baptists, Baptist, so I can make fun of Baptists. If you are one, make fun of them, right? Okay. Baptists have this thing about alcohol. What? it why i don't know i really don't jesus turned water into wine but somehow baptists are convinced at least some that that was grape juice you know i don't understand how and then it goes on and it's like do not be drunk on grape juice for that's debauchery no do not be drunk on wine for that's debauchery Baptists are hung up on alcohol. Why? Because it's an easy one that they have chosen. And i pick on Baptists because we are. But every denomination has their own. Okay? And there's these little list of rules and rituals. And and we come up with them all the time. Like it's, you got to wear a tie. Or maybe if it's, you don't have to wear a tie. Maybe it's, you don't have to wear a tie. And so like if somebody actually shows up with a tie on, like you're offended. Like, no, we don't do that here. We're casual. Like, we, you you didn't get the dress code, buddy. It's jeans around here. Our pastor doesn't even tuck his shirt in. What are you doing? Like, we have moved on, okay? We're better. Well, we're not better. We're, you know what I'm saying? Like, we will come up with a list because it's what our heart does. It is the natural response of our heart to say, I want to earn righteousness in some way or another. Now, I'll give you a couple examples of it. You ever had a season in your life where you did not attend the church regularly and your mom and dad were Christians and they knew about it? Don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. Did you ever have a season in your life where mom and dad were Christians, they expected you to be a part of a church, and Somehow word kind of got back to them that like, you didn't say it, but they, you know, how was church today? Oh, well, you know, and you change the subject and they finally figured it out. And what do they start to ask you? What's their question? Have you found a church home yet? And then after a while, they stop asking and they start telling. What are their words? You need to get in church. Isn't that it? Which, by the way, are really weird Southern colloquialisms, Christian colloquialisms that I've, that I've realized. You need to find a church home. Like, have you ever asked somebody who's never been a part of a church before, do you have a church home? Do I have a, a what? Is that like somebody who buys an old firehouse and makes it into a home, like a church home? Like, what? What's a church home? No, I have a home. Are you asking if I have a church? Or you need to get in church. Like, what does that mean? Get in there. I don't know what they do, but we need to get in there. You know, like, what is that all about? And I'm, I'm kind of making fun of it because here's the deal. While our parents meant well, because what they're saying is you're really making poor decisions. We're worried about you. We want you to follow Jesus. But the only problem with that is that it's really easy to gain knowledge about Jesus. Get in there. Get in church. It's really easy to gain knowledge about Jesus, but all the while to never draw close to Jesus. Really easy to do. In essence, we end up knowing more about Jesus, but actually knowing Jesus less. Did you get that? If we're looking to gain righteousness through outward experiences and outward things, we we'll actually will know more about Jesus, but we'll actually know Jesus less. Christians are the worst about setting up this set of rituals and then following them so they feel slightly consoled because they've done something, but it doesn't solve the ache of the human heart that longs for peace. Our rituals and our religion, whatever they self-concocted are, don't quiet the restless voice within. Only the king of righteousness can do that. One more quick example for you. Let you kind of unearth some of that legalism that's in there. This one will hit a little closer to home. Let's say you don't have your devotions for several days. What's your common response when you show up to your coffee group? So we have these coffee groups that are like three, four, five people that meet together and they... They've agreed, we're gonna read these passages of scripture, we're gonna talk about them, we're gonna pray for one another. What's your common response when you show up to your coffee group and you haven't read? Other than feeling guilty. What's your common response? Ah, I gotta get start getting up earlier. Ah, I gotta get it together. Or maybe you just self loathing. I just stink. No, I didn't do it, guys. I just I, I, I just stink. Do you do any of that? The better response is to realize that we don't need just a better plan or a stronger will. What we need is actually a regime change. That's what he talks about as he moves on. Look in verses 12 through 16. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. What's he talking about here? Look back to verse... 12 he says for when there's a change in the priesthood he's talking about from the levitical priesthood the change is coming through jesus and i don't i don't know of a better example than the contrast that we've seen in regime changes than maybe our former president obama and now our current president donald trump don't know a better example do things change when you see presidents change has there been a change or two for better or worse I'm not making any political statements. I'm just saying a lot has changed, right? And that's in the new covenant through Jesus. Jesus brings about massive change. That's what the writer of Hebrews is reminding them about. He brings about massive change. Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah, which is not the tribe of Levi, but his reign as priest comes not because of his genealogy, but because of his indestructible life. He's pointing out that Jesus is worthy to reign as a priest, not because he's part of the tribe of Levi, but because of who Jesus is. See, we can't keep the law. We can't get it together. We can't fix ourselves. Only Jesus can fix us. Only Jesus can forgive us. Only Jesus can give us peace because only Jesus is righteous. Now look in verses 17 through 19. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Listen to how beautiful this is. What the law was incapable of doing because we're weak and sinful, Jesus has done for us. Verses 17 through 19 are saying that Jesus is our forever priest who's made the perfect sacrifice that's once and for all that connects us to God. He is our better hope because he is the better high priest. So we don't have to go back to the law. We don't have to go back to trying to fix things on our own. When you're tempted to say, I've got to get it together, instead say, I've got to get to Jesus Because Jesus is the one who connects you to God. Not to a list of rules or a list of rituals. Is reading the Bible or church attendance important? Yeah. Only if it comes as a response from our love for Jesus and our desire to know him more. Not as a way of acquiring righteousness or peace. Otherwise, we'll know more about Jesus and we'll be further from him. Because of Jesus, we have a better hope. Our hope is not in trying harder and doing better. Our hope is not in external things. That's the way of the Old Covenant. Our hope is now to draw near to God through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. Our hope, listen to this. If you say, I don't know how to turn away from doing better, you don't have the power to. You need to surrender. Our hope is in the power of God and the Holy Spirit now as New Covenant believers, who is now in us, who lives inside of us, and our hope comes through a new high priest who's finished the work and forever intercedes for us. So the next time you need to change, the next time you realize, man, I, <clears throat> I've messed up, the next time you see the need to turn away from sin and yourself and to turn to God, remember the grace the Father has extended to you through the Son, Jesus and his grace will give you the power to change. Now, we see an explanation of that grace in the closing verses. Last verses, 20 through 28. Stick with me. This is where it's going to get really personal. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, You are a priest forever. "...unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later, when the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever." We talk a lot about becoming fluent in the gospel. Talk about gospel fluency. What does it mean to preach the gospel to ourselves, especially as believers? Not just to preach to others, but to preach it to ourselves. Gospel fluency comes in knowing Jesus is our better high priest. I'll make this really personal for you. Everyone here suffers from shame, fear, and guilt. Everyone. Those aren't bad emotions, by the way. Shame caused... All of us to put clothes on this morning before we came here. Thank goodness for shame. Amen? All right. Uh, there is good guilt, right? So a moral, if a moral offense is committed, so let's say little Johnny ate little Billy's jelly beans and little Johnny feels bad, he feels guilty, that's good guilt. Shouldn't have ate little Billy's jelly beans, little Johnny. It's good guilt. <clears throat> so we all suffer from shame and fear and guilt, But sin causes us to feel these emotions in either an exaggerated or a diminished form. And if we're really honest, Satan, he might be creative, but he's not a creator. And so we've talked about this before, but all sin is parasitic. And what I mean by that is all sin has to attach itself to something else, to something good that God has created. So so Satan uses God's good gifts, and he causes them to either become exaggerated or to become diminished. And and this thought was, I think it was first expressed by Augustine, but you'll see it all throughout Luther's writings and all throughout Barth's writings. So an example, adultery is simply God's gift of sex exaggerated outside of marriage. Satan hadn't done anything new there. He's taken God's good gift that God created, he's exaggerated it outside the, the boundaries of marriage. Pride is an exaggerated view of self in a diminished view of God. You see that in the fall when Satan says to Eve, surely you will not die. Remember that? So these three underlying emotions, we all experience them. Shame, fear, guilt, They're expressed in an unhealthy form. They're either exaggerated or they're diminished when we aren't believing the gospel. And each one of us who are here, we're mainly driven by one of those. So shame, one of these is gonna ring true for you. Shame is, I believe at my essence that I'm not enough. That's what shame is. Fear is an anxiety about what might happen. So fear usually shows up in either I'm withdrawn or I'm aggressive. And guilt is what I do is not enough. The bar is always higher. What I do is not enough. So for each of us, one of those, shame, fear, or guilt is what we most identify with, but then we make a crazy kind of concoction out of the other two as well. We have a cocktail of the three. Okay, so they all three affect us, but one is our main driver when we're not believing the gospel. Now, what I want you, as you think about that, I want you to listen to the fact of how the writer describes Jesus as our great high priest. And how who Jesus is counteracts every bit of the shame and the fear and the guilt that we will ever face. Jesus is the better high priest. He is the cure for shame, fear, and guilt. We see it in these verses. Jesus is a priest forever, the writer says. He is a priest forever. The perfect cure for fear is Jesus. Because when we have tension or anxiety about what might happen, Jesus is the perfect cure because Jesus says, no matter what happens, I will never leave you or forsake you. There's nothing that can separate you from my love. So go ahead. Play out the worst case scenario that you can imagine. Ever done that before? I've done it a lot. Play out the very worst case scenario that you can imagine. And at the end of the darkest night, Jesus will be the light at the end of the tunnel. He's our priest forever because he's a better high priest Jesus is able to save to the uttermost, is what this passage says. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is the perfect cure for shame. Because shame says, at my essence, I'm not enough. I'm tainted. I'm damaged goods. I'm messed up beyond recognition. I'll never be worthy or lovable. And Jesus is the perfect cure for shame because he is able to save to the uttermost. There's nothing you've done or can ever do that will make you unlovable. Nothing so terrible, so horrible that's beyond his scope of forgiveness. So when you feel the overwhelming emotion of shame, you turn to Jesus because of grace and you declare, I'm not good enough because Jesus is. And because Jesus is worthy, the Father calls me forgiven and loved. Jesus is our great high priest. He's a better high priest. He's priest forever. He's able to save to the uttermost. And he always lives to make intercession, which means that he's the perfect cure for guilt. A, guilt, a person who, and I know this well, a person who struggles with guilt says, what I do is not enough. I always raise the bar. Can always be a little better. Always have this voice, internal voice in your head. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you are clueless. Jesus is the perfect cure for guilt because he always lives to make intercession for us. You say, it wasn't good enough. Jesus said, it's okay. I'm your advocate. I am continually pleading on your behalf, making intercession to the Father. Your prayers are always answered. God always hears them, not because of you, but because of me. I am your perfect intercessor. Who always lives to make intercession to the Father. You say, "Why well, I'm good enough. It doesn't have to be. Jesus has our back. Jesus is the better high priest. That's what the writer is showing us all throughout this chapter, using Melchizedek to point us to that. Today, as we prepare our hearts to worship God through the Lord's Supper, um, I'm reminded of Charles Spurgeon's quote. He says, Never mind that bread and wine, unless you can use them as folks often use their spectacles. What do they use them for? To look at? No. To look through them. So use the bread and wine as a pair of spectacles. Look through them and do not be satisfied until you can say, Yes, yes, I can see the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. We invite all followers of Jesus who have come to God by grace, through faith, and have trusted in his death and resurrection to worship with us. Come to this table, not because you must, but because you may. Not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Come not because any goodness of your own gives you a right to come, but because you need mercy and help. Come because you love the Lord a little and would like to love him more. Come because he loved you and gave himself for you. Come and remember the risen Christ, for we are his body.